Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold, and we're in the third Sunday of Advent. And John the Baptist, who has been preaching and calling the people of Judea and the Jordan area, Jordan River area, to repentance, is in Herod's prison because he's attacked Herod for his illicit marriage to Herodias. And Herodias, as you remember, has called for his head on a platter through her little daughter, Salome. And so John's in prison and his death is approaching. And like many people, I guess he's taking stock of his life and wondering, is was this all worth it? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus. And in the gospel today in Matthew, here's the question they ask in Matthew 11. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And here's Jesus' response in the gospel. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. That's an interesting uh, response, isn't it? Because what you're expecting the question means is, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Isn't John just asking whether Jesus is the Messiah? And the answer is, is no. Uh, he's referring to something else from the Old Testament. If you remember last week, there's all sorts of expectations for messiahs. Cyrus the Great, the Persian, was the messiah that freed the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. And then there was a Messiah that was supposed to be the Davidic king that would free them from the Jewish people from the oppression of the, of the conqueror. And if you remember when in the last few uh, episodes, we talked about the Hasmoneans and the Maccabees, uh, which is Maccabees 1 and 2 in the Old Testament, and how uh, there was a, a, a successful political messiah who began a whole new Jewish dynasty. It had nothing to do with the Davidic kings, uh, but it started a new dynasty of priests and uh, kings. And at least the part, uh, both kind of lasted until Jesus' time. Herod the Great's the heir of the Hasmonean dynasty, and the, the Sadducee party in the temple is the heirs of the Hasmonean priesthood from uh, a man named John Hieracanus, who was king and high priest a century or more before, before Jesus' time. And so they'd had political messiahs, and they'd had priestly messiahs, uh, and they just didn't fill the bill. And so when John is asking, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? He's referring to, again, the book of the prophet Isaiah, who has all sorts of different prophecies about different future events. But uh, this one from Isaiah 35, which is the first reading from the gospel today, this is what John's referring to. And Isaiah says this, Here is your God. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared, then will the lame leap like a stag, then the tongue of the mute will sing. So Jesus and John are on the same page. I said that last week. They're tuned in. And John's wondering, are you something more than all these other messiahs that have showed up in our history? 
What he's asking is, are you the God that comes with vindication? Are you the one who makes the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear? So remember Jesus' response in Matthew 11? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their light, the lame walk, the sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor of the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. So these signs of healing that only God can do. Political messiahs can't do them. Priestly messiahs don't do them. But Jesus is something more. He is this figure, the Son of Man in Daniel 9. He is this God who comes with vindication in Isaiah 35. In order to see what's happening in the gospel, you ought to tell the difference between apples and oranges because Jesus exceeds even John the Baptist's um, meager expectations there at the end of his life because he's the God who comes to walk through the wasteland with signs of healing. Let's turn to that now and talk about why this is so significant for our lives and for understanding the gospel. And so here's a good question about the gospel. So Jesus comes, and undeniably he does these miracles. It's why people pay attention to him. He makes the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead. He raises that little girl, Talitha Kum, from the dead. They even give you the Aramaic words he said when he raised her from the dead. They all died. What is the significance of this bit from Isaiah 35 about here's your God, he comes with vindication, with divine recompense. Uh, He comes to vindicate you, he's going to pay you back. He comes to save you, it says. And then it goes through the list of miracles that God will do when he comes amongst his people. You know, it's interesting, we just uh, celebrated the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And you remember the Immaculate Conception is this dogma that goes back to the fathers of the church and is rooted in 1 Corinthians and Paul's letter to the Romans about the new Adam and the new Eve. Paul says that Jesus is the new Adam. The first Adam is the fleshly Adam um, that comes into the world and sin comes in through him. The second Adam is the spiritual Adam and in, uh, through him comes salvation. And so the church correctly reasons that there's a new Adam, there's a new Eve, because it's about recreation. God is justifying. God is fixing his broken creation. And so that the signs that the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be cleared, is that humanity's wounds will be healed. They'll be vindicated. They'll be recompensed. He will save us. And so when Jesus comes, uh, he comes as the sign of this coming salvation, which makes the human humanity whole. And so the whole big story of, of, of uh, the gospel is, remember the fall of the human person begins in a garden and it turns that garden of eden into a wasteland 
I mean, it's a desert that the people wander through to get to the desert that they live in, which is uh, the nation of Israel. When, when God comes to walk in the nation of Israel, uh, the son, uh, the second person of the Trinity, he's doing what his father did. Because if you remember in Genesis 3, it said the father came to walk in the cool of the evening in the garden, and he couldn't find Adam and Eve, so he called for them. Why are you hiding? We're naked. Who told you you were naked? Ah, you've eaten from the fruit, God says. So is it a coincidence that Jesus comes to the garden in this wasteland that is Israel and he walks there? That when he suffers the night before he dies, he's in a garden, right? The Garden of Gethsemane. And do you remember when he rises from the dead? Mary Magdalene mistakes him as a gardener um, because Jesus is risen from the dead, but she sees him in this graveyard because in death there is life. And so that the wasteland has been transformed, it's been healed. You know, the pagan approach to religion, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans uh, or uh, the other uh, the other cultures around Israel, like the Babylonians, uh, they posited these opposing powers. It's like the yin and the yang in uh, the Chinese or Buddhist understanding of reality. It's what, if you know about Gnosticism and Manichaeism, a form of Gnosticism, it's always about opposing forces. So good and evil are opposing forces. In, uh, in these worldviews. And in uh, like the Greco and Roman, Greek and Roman uh, myths, it's the male versus the female. And the male is always dominating the female. Um, in uh, another way that's less about feminine and masculine, it's about uh, order versus chaos. And of course, if you just think about the way women have been treated, even in Christian times, men are the rational ones, women are the emotional ones. It's just a veiled way of this ancient belief about male and female representing order and chaos. The Judeo-Christian tradition has nothing to do with that. Very different. God is not male and female, and so he creates a child out of that God is one pers one God, three divine persons. And when he creates the human person, he creates the male and female in his image and likeness because it's not good for the man to be alone, it says in the book of Genesis. And men and women, uh, this complementarity makes humanity complete. And so that fault in that first male and that first female um, this is what causes the fallout between Cain and Abel, the next story in Genesis 4. And what's the fallout? Cain is jealous of Abel. He's competing with him because Abel's uh, sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's wasn't. It's that initial conflict um, between brothers. It is no mystery that when Jesus comes and he calls his disciples, he calls brothers, he calls Peter and Andrew, who are brothers. He calls James and John, who are brothers. Because all of these things, whether it's the blind seeing, um, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, 
brothers brought together uh, in love of God, these are all signs of these ancient wounds in humanity that are being addressed. But they're like sacraments. They're signs of something unseen. And that unseen is the future. And so with the Immaculate Conception, which we just celebrated on Thursday, why is it that Mary is immaculately conceived? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians and Romans that Jesus is the new Adam. Uh, the first Adam, sin comes into the world. The second Adam, uh, the, the spirit comes into the world. And the church, as I said, correctly reasons that uh, if there's a new Adam, there must be a new Eve because evil strikes at the source of life. And we all come into the world through our mothers. It's why Eve, her Hebrew name is Zoe, because she's the mother of the living. Zoe means life. And so that when it's all very symbolic language. And so when Satan strikes at this holy couple in the Garden of Eden, he is just striking at God giving life to the world. So why the Immaculate Conception? Justice. God comes with vindication, according to Isaiah 35, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. If sin came into the world through a woman, so must salvation come into the world through a woman. You know, one of the most touching things about Jesus and the gospel is how he deals with women. There is disciples. When he comes to walk through the roads of Galilee and Judea with his male disciples, he also has women with him. Why? Because he's like his old man. He's like the father. The father loved to walk through creation with Adam and Eve. And his son is a chip off the old block. And he's doing the very same thing. Why? Because this is who God is. Man and woman are radically equal, though not the same before God. So what does that mean? The life of grace, that our lives come from our mothers, all of us, and our salvation comes through the Virgin Mary. It's why she is um, revered and venerated in our Catholic community. And I remind you the difference between worship and veneration is worship requires sacrifice. And the only sacrifice the Catholic Church has is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which we participate in at Mass through uh, the Holy Eucharist. Uh, it's an oblation where we, baptized into the priesthood, all take our priestly share of that sacrifice. Veneration is what you do with members of your community, the community of the saint, um, who are especially honored uh, because of who they are in this whole economy of salvation. And so, you know, a couple of things to take out of uh, this second Sunday of Advent and what God's plan is in coming and taking on human flesh is justice, divine justice, is restoring what was unjustly taken from the human person by the satanic, by evil. Um, if you get a lawyer and you're looking for justice, I guess Eve and Adam would sue Satan in a Arizona court of law and want a million and a half dollars in damages, or maybe it's a billion dollars, whatever it is. It'll never be justice. That can't ever restore you. Justice is this. You lost your sight, you get it back. 
Justice says you lost your hearing, you get it back. Justice says you lost your ability to walk, you get it back. Justice says if you die, you get your life back. This is justice as only God can give it. And so Isaiah 35 is about fundamentally God's justice. And when Jesus responds to John the Baptist in prison, he's doing what only God can do. And he's pointing it out to John the Baptist. You know, the second thing besides God's justice is to remember what evil is. There are some religious approaches. Gnosticism, the New Age, is a really good example of it because it is just Gnosticism. But that the idea that there are these opposing forces, good and evil, order and chaos, male and female, this is what dualism is. And what the church really condemns is dualism in this understanding of what dualistic power is. Because for us, as explained by St. Augustine, especially in City of God, evil is a parasite. Evil's this snake that hangs in the garden, and it feeds off the good. It has no existence other than the extent to which it can embed itself into the good. That's why every sin you commit you commit because you see some good in it. It may be a warped good or a disordered good, but all sinners see some good in it. That's why people can't, I guess, ever really go out of existence or even Satan himself, because at some level, there may not be any moral goodness there, but there is what the church would call ontological goodness, the goodness of being. Ontos means to be. And so the tragedy for people will not respond to God, cannot participate in divine goodness through Christ Jesus. They still have existence. They just don't have life. So evil is a deprivation. Something's lacking. Think about that. When you look out in the world and wonder what the problems is, is it really that men and women fight, that feminists uh, want to unseat men, or uh, have the same power that men have. Why doesn't everybody ask, what's the whole person look like? What do men and women both have to do so that in our culture, there is this place for human dignity and human wholeness? There's a reason why um, systems fostering, fostered or founded on competition as the highest value can never be fulfilling for human beings. Sure, you get top, top of the pile and you, and you uh, beat your fist against your chest, but even Elon Musk, who's worth, what, 350 billion bucks, um, he's like standing on this little pile of dirt in tiny town. And so what's so great about being a giant in tiny town? To think, however, that God shares his divine life in us as we are remade in his image and likeness. This is, the, this is the divine purpose, the divine justice, to rid the world of everything that, defi de de that defiles the fullness of life in human beings. It's what the Immaculate Conception is. It's what we have to look forward to. And so we think of Isaiah 35 and the one who is to come. There's only one who is to come. It's God walking in his garden. Yeah, it's a wasteland now, but he has plans for it. And it's going to change. It's going to change dramatically. So let's turn the page to the final chapter of this 
episode of Oro Valley Catholic. And let's talk a little bit about the letter of James, the second reading, and what it means to walk with God through the garden. So are you good at patience? I think some people are naturally good at patience. I think it's part of prudence. It's the willingness to wait and let life unfold. You know the problem with being hyper-competitive Americans is you're going to go out there and you're going to take charge of your destiny. And if you're like Ralph Waldo Emerson or many of your neighbors, they're going to make their own future for themselves and carve their destiny out by their own individual strengths. Well, so what? Um, you know, Seneca, the famous Stoic, said this. Um, for some people, they cooperate with destiny. Other people are just drugged by it. The idea that you really can't escape reality and that there is a destiny for all of us and that destiny is, is Christ. And if you don't cooperate Seneca would say, although he was a, essentially an atheist, um, you just get drug along unwillingly in Christ's world because the first battle, the original battle for creation was fought on the cross. You know, I was uh, listening to the bishop and he was said that the cross is like the Allied invasion of Normandy. The German defenses there on June 6, 1944, were able to hold off the Allied invasion for I think at most for like six hours. And then the beachhead was established all along the Normandy coast. Uh, and what uh, he pointed out was that really was the end of the war. There were a lot of battles to be fought after that, right? But the outcome was certain. Germany was getting invaded from the east by the Russians and everybody else and getting invaded from the west by the allies uh, and their industrial might, and they were getting pounded from the air uh, day and night. Um, the outcome was certain. It's just how many people were going to get killed till you got to the final chapter, chapter. So the problem of the Christian is to recognize that we're in the middle of that offensive, and uh, it is wearing down the darkness in the world. But the darkness obviously has these moments when it seems to, to rouse itself up, but it never has moral legitimacy because people don't believe anymore in the idea that there are just these opposing powers. There's no good or evil. There's just power, the yin and the yang. Um, that is for uh, dilettantes. It's for the unserious because everybody judges what the Nazis did or what Stalin did. Uh, I mean, you look at American politics, it's full of judgments, some of them pretty erroneous, but it's about morality. It's disordered as it might be. Everybody believes that there are, is this order that must be followed if the world is supposed to be just. So while that unrolls, that unravels, that unfolds, whatever the word you choose is, is the letter of James says, patience, wait for it, wait for it. James chapter five. Be patient, brothers and sisters, till the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient with it until it receives the, the early and the late rains. You too must be patient. 
make your hearts uh, firm because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers and sisters, about one another, that you might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing before the gates. Take as an example the hardship and patience, brothers and sisters, of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, like John the Baptist sitting in prison, waiting to have his head cut off. You know, the Immaculate Conception, the resurrection of the Lord, what Jesus did walking with men and women through the wasteland, it's the beginning of the end, these signs that Jesus performed about uh, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, and the lame walking. Um, the whole story of Scripture is the Garden of Eden to the gardener in the graveyard, life and death. Because if you remember, the punishment on Adam and Eve was that you are dust and unto dust you shall return. So there's Mary Magdalene, the sinner, a woman at the feet of her master, the Lord, in the valley of death. And what is she told? Don't cling to me. I have yet to ascend to your father and my father. The Lord is our brother. He won't forget us. How do you walk with the Lord? Patience. And so here's what Second Peter says in verse chapter 1, verse 5. May every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues, be just as you can be with others. Be prudent in how you make judgments. Be temperate, moderate in uh, your appetites. And above all, courageous endurance, even in difficult times. Deuteronomy 10 um, says this about virtue. And uh, it's the image of Christ, if you understand correctly how you're looking at Jesus and why he is the one we imitate. Deuteronomy 10, chapter, verse 12. What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We live our moral lives, lives directed to virtue, that somehow describe who Christ is and what makes him so lovable. What does does make him lovable? That a first century Jewish male would spend the time he does with children and women, the people that to the culture didn't matter so much, maybe in the household, but not outside their own house, that's for sure. To all these guys who are on the outskirts, especially the brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, that he walks through the garden, putting back together everything that's fallen apart. So here we are in the, sec the third Sunday of Advent, and John's wondering whether all of it was worthwhile, and he just has to hear it one more time. Are you the one who is to come? Do you believe what you see? Do you believe what the faith tells you? Do you believe about Christ in your own life? This is the time uh, that to try men's souls, right? Uh, to figure out who men and women really are. Because if you don't love Jesus and you don't love virtue, what the heck have you put in its place? And you really think that you're going to win the battle of the powerful uh, for whoever gets to sit on top of the little dirt hill in the midst of tiny town? 
God has much bigger things for us, brothers and sisters. God has his own life to give us. And so be patient a little while longer and we'll be celebrating Christmas and we'll remember the cause of our joy. This has been Father John Arnold and this has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic.